You're listening to episode 29 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the Atom, Red Tornado, and the Americamando, aka Mr. America, aka Tex Thompson. Wait, whoa, whoa, I'm not ready. to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I'm excited to welcome my first guest of this episode back to the show. It's Diablo Frank. How are you doing, buddy Opal? I'm looking forward to an atomic good time. <laughs> well, unlike your previous appearances on Secret Origins, talking about Black Condor and the Floronic Man, you actually give a crap about the guy we're talking about this time, don't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of the character, but it's sort of an interesting scenario because I, I'm not a huge fan of those other two characters, but they're Golden Age characters. I love the Golden Age, the wackiness and the Wild West frontier qualities of it, where I, I loathe the Silver Age, and the Adam is a Silver Age-based character. Mm-hmm. So it, I'm still, you know, kind of, I, I'm, I love this character, but I'm not as excited about covering him as I was the other guys, I guess, you'd say. So it's going to be a little tricky, I think. Well, fake it for the benefit of the listeners. Done. Okay. All right. As Frank just said, we are talking about the Silver Age Atom. But before we get into that, I need to remind my listeners of the all-important context for the series. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in the series. And one of the stories included in this issue doesn't really belong here, but I'll get to that later with my next guest. Now, Frank, you've got a blog and podcast devoted to this version of the Atom. Why are you so interested in this character? Well, first an explanation. Back when I first started doing stuff on the internet, I had a web TV site, and because of how web TV worked, when you tried to build sites, you had to build like entirely separate sites, and then you could connect them via these bridges. So uh, I got started with like a family of blogs, basically because I was still working under that mindset instead of just putting everything on one blog like a sane person would do. Well, because I'd already created this network of blogs, I decided to do a great big crossover, not only of my own blogs, but as many other people's blogs as I could, called the DC Challenge. It ended up being one of the most painful experiences of my blogging life, trying to make that thing happen. But one thing I wanted to do is there was a blogger named Damian Mafai, who was an actor, he still is as far as I know, uh, who'd set up his own, let me think, I think it was called 
the tiny Titan block. And I loved it. It was, it was a great little short segments where he would show, you know, different items that had been uh, produced featuring the Adam. And he obviously had love for the character and it was like his devoted site, but he basically let it go dark as he went on with his acting career. And so I contacted him. I asked if it would be okay if I sort of continued the site at another URL and just sort of linked to his stuff, but sort of continued his tradition. He was, he was game for that. So to some degree, I inherited an Adam blog more than I intentionally started it. But because I, I love that character, I have a great affection for him. I have since I read the Adam special from the early 90s. And I, I think it's a character with an enormous potential. I tend to enjoy his appearances. So I'm happy to have the blog, but I don't have the expertise or the authority that I might have with something like Martian Manhunter. Um, so it's going to be interesting because I know this character, but not to the degree I did because I didn't know that I, I didn't do the kind of research I did with Dollman or Black uh, Condor. So it's going to be interesting to see if I can pull this off and how much uh, looser this one's going to be than some of the other ones we've done so far. All right, well, I'll, I'll help you out by going through the publication history for the character and then talk about my own experience with him. The Silver Age Adam debuted in Showcase, issue 34, published in 1961. Like the Flash, Green Lantern, and Hawkman before him, the second Adam was reimagined for the science fiction age by writer Gardner Fox, artists Gil Kane and Murphy Anderson, and the editorial shepherding of Julie Schwartz. After a three-issue trial period in Showcase, the Atom earned his own self-titled series that was published until the end of the 1960s. The last seven books of the 45-issue run were rebranded The Atom and Hawkman. Even earlier in his career, after only the second published issue of the Atom solo series, Ray Palmer was elected to the Justice League of America in issue 14 of that book. He would appear fairly consistently with the Justice League until 1983, as well as backup strips in action comics during the 70s, and occasional guest stints in The Brave and the Bold, DC Comics Presents, and World's Finest. In 1983, Ray Palmer was taken out of Ivy Town and the JLA satellite and thrust into the world of tiny sword and sandal fantasy, like something from Edgar Rice Burroughs or Robert E. Howard. Sword of the Atom, written by Jan Strad. Never think, I, I always think that name is mistyped when I say I know, it. I, I called him Jan Strand for years because it had a nice rhyming quality to it. it and, does. And when I realized that it was Sternad, it's like, I don't know. Is that's, that a name that human beings have? Again? That's not a name. That's, that's, that sounds like something from one of the stories he wrote, not an actual person. <laughs> yeah. So, Sword of the Atom written by Jan Strad and drawn by original Atom artist Gil Kane, nice simple name there, effectively ended Ray Palmer's marriage to Gene Loring and dumped him in the Amazon rainforest with a kingdom of six-inch-tall alien warriors. The four-issue miniseries was followed up by three Sword of the Atom specials published in 1984, 1985, and 1988, the last one published just two months before this issue of Secret Origins. After this issue, the Atom starred in a new ongoing series called Power of the Atom that lasted 18 issues. Then I know he starred in the 1990s Teen Titans book as sort of mentor for that team. Of course, the miniseries Identity Crisis did a bit of a number on Ray. And after Infinite Crisis, Ray was replaced by an all-new Atom named Ryan Choi in a book called The All-New Atom. But he came back during Blackest Night and remained somewhat popular until the New 52. That's what I've got as far as his publication history. Did I leave anything major out? Uh, nothing too major. One thing I do want to say, though, is there's a bit of a contention about who created Ray Palmer. The two of the early, the, basically the godfathers of comic book fandom are Roy Thomas and Jerry Bales. And they were 
constantly writing letters to Julie Schwartz trying to you know champion the revivals of Golden Age heroes and how to do that. And they had suggested bringing back the Atom as a science-based character, as a shrinking character along the lines of Richard Matheson's The Incredible Shrinking Man. And Julie Schwartz has always contended that it was just an amazing coincidence that both he and they had the same ideas. Um, so there's a bit of a contention about at that element of it. Hmm, not sure whose word I should take on that because I like that story, and I'm I'm usually hesitant to trust management in positions like that. But I also know that Roy Thomas takes credit for a lot of things. That... Yeah, and also Julie Schwartz isn't Mort Weisinger, so it's a, he's a little true. bit more reputable uh, source for this sort of thing. That's true. That's true. And, and the thing is, too, is Julie was a big sci-fi fan himself, and obviously he'd been an editor. He named the character after the sci-fi editor, Raymond Palmer. So uh, it wouldn't shock me at all that he'd also either seen the Amazing Shrinking Man movie adaptation or read the, the novella. So I could definitely see parallel lines. I, the Adam, as a name, makes much more sense for a shrinking character anyway. So mm-hmm. it's just like the natural course anybody would want to take. Sure, that's something that I talked about with Gene Hendricks when we did the Golden Age Adam story. And we actually, you and I talked about it on your first appearance on the show when we talked about Doll Man, that this character, Ray Palmer, is much more of a legacy character in spirit, in function of the Doll Man hero and not the original Adam. Yeah, and actually my understanding too is that Gil Kane has also claimed credit for coming up with the angle of having him being a shrinking hero and specifically referenced Doll Man while doing so. So that's all up in the air, it seems. I knew the character existed, you know, when I was getting into comics and superheroes, but because during my formative years I was so much more of a Marvel zombie, you know, I I liked Ant-Man. He was my shrinking hero because he had that really cool helmet, and I told you about that before, how much I liked that helmet. So I always kind of just considered the Atom an afterthought and really didn't pay much attention to him until when I started deep diving into DC in the mid-2000s, and... It was, in part, identity crisis that made me think about this new character. Now, this story has a lot of problems, some structurally and some based on what has come out of that story in terms of the publication level. But I I, I do give Brad Meltzer a lot of credit that the way he constructs character sketches and the way his insights into characters are really, really good when he's writing these comics. And I thought he did a great job with Ray Palmer. I really liked the character after that, and I was excited when Jeff Johns brought him back in Blackest Night. Yeah, I actually, I agree with you. The thing about Identity Crisis is Melter did very bad things in a very good way. The story is very well told. I love the way he gets into the character, the character's voices right. I don't have a problem with necessarily bringing in mature elements to these Bronze Age stories. It's just that he took it so far that it seems very distasteful. I just can't argue with, you know, I love looking at the book. I think that Rags Morales' art was excellent. I love his rendition of Gene Loring and Ray Palmer. I, I just, I wish that we hadn't had to go through such grim territory to get that story. I wish that maybe they could have pulled it back just a little bit. Just take one or two of the more sorted elements out and not going so far into the dark, you know, with the story. But I think that was part of what made it a appealing story to other people because they were shocked that you could do that kind of storytelling in a comic book. So Sure, sure. And especially for me, I was I was shocked in particular that it was happening in the DC universe, which for me always had that sort of glisten of the super friends and the superpowers toys and that this is a shinier, happier, sparklier version of comic book superheroes. Whereas if that same type of story had been told in an Avenger story or in the Marvel universe, I don't think I would have batted an eye. I don't know how many people would have. 
Yeah, well, they Marvel had done a lot of stuff along those lines, really in the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, the less said about Miss Marvel conceiving her own child with, I mean, conceiving a child with her own child. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a it's a mess. But that's actually one of my problems is I think that creators learned the lesson to not do those particular types of stories in the 80s. And so this was sort of revisited that. And I know Melcher was a big fan of Bronze Age comics. He was a big influence on him. So I, I think that that was an unfortunate influence. But again, it's such, such a well-told story. I just I, – I could have done without Dr. Light lingering and getting up the nonsense he got up to. But the story in itself just taken as one volume, it's a pretty good read if you can get past the sordid elements. If Meltzer didn't do like big crossover, like world status quo changing events, but limited his work to like sort of one shots or like special issues or something, like they did like post crisis, I think that would be good because his work, his work in comics, he he does very good job when he's writing sort of love letter pastiches that aren't so much plot centric as just character explorations. That's what he did on Green Arrow for a couple issues, and when you read it as a trade, it's like, okay, nothing really happens in this. It's just Ali revisiting the, his past glories because it's being told by a writer who loved those past glories, and he gets to play with those. So I, I really liked how he approached Oliver Queen, how he approached Ray Palmer in these stories, and there were some really good moments between Ray and Jean that unfortunately went down these dark and terrible paths that everybody criticize that you know maybe maybe dc shouldn't have traveled this particular road but well and also you got to pick your characters don't mm-hmm. hand the justice league over to the guy who's only moonlighting that that always blows up in people's faces they always give the their their top dollar characters to these creators whereas if you give kevin smith green arrow at a time when nobody really cared about green arrow then it works. Same goes for Meltzer when he took it over. Give them the characters that have the leeway to where you can play with them. And if this guy only comes in and does an arc and then he leaves, it's okay. When you give him a, a, one of the jewels, like the Justice League, we saw what he did with the Justice League. It was a cry and shame. All right, folks, we are going to take a quick promotional break. But when we come back, the origin of the Atom. Warlord Worlds a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. Secret Origins issue 29 had a cover date of August 1988. But if you ask Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, it actually came out on April 19th of that year. The issue cost $1.50, and it sported a cover by Graham Nolan that shows Ray Palmer in his newly redesigned costume, standing on the shoulders of another one of Frank's favorite heroes, the Martian Manhunter, and one of my favorites, Batman. The text whizzing over Professor Palmer's head announces his new title, Power of the Atom. And then, as almost an afterthought, you've got Mr. America and the Golden Age Red Tornado in the box down at the bottom. What do you think of this cover? I'm really glad that they treated those two as an afterthought. (laughs) 
I, I think if those guys had taken up space on this cover, it would have been really galling, uh, especially for uh, the Adam, a guy who's often overlooked for him to have to share space with such lesser lights. I also, I just love the cover concept. I mean, the, the physics don't quite work with him standing on the two shoulders of Titans. Uh, and I think it probably would have been better too if it had been Superman and Batman. But I, I love the cover concept. I love that it lets you know that this guy is is one of the titans of, of DC Comics. At least that was the intention how they were selling it. And I think it's a really nice dynamic pose that he's got. It makes me want to check this guy out. He looks like he's one of the cool guys. The physics is a little weird how he must be, because Batman is standing in front of Jean, he must be, yeah, that doesn't really work. He'd have to be lunging forward to step from one shoulder to the next, but it doesn't matter. At, at a quick glance, it, it really looks good. Now, I'm questioning when, like, the first issue of Power of the Atom came out uh, two weeks after this book, I believe. I think it actually even says at the end of this one, the Power of the Atom was supposed to come out one week after this issue hit the shelves. Now, he's wearing a brand new costume on this cover. Now, I haven't read the Power of the Atom series, but looking at those covers, this costume doesn't appear until the cover of issue three of that series. On the covers of issues one and two, he's still got the red pants and the blue boots. Whereas here, he's got blue pants and red boots. He's got basically Superman's bottom half. And I'm wondering how far along that series was done by the time they got to this cover. Well, I have to give DC credit. They really went out to push Power of the Atom. They they really wanted to associate it with all the new reimagined versions of the DC heroes. First, you had John Byrne Superman, then George Perez's Wonder Woman, and I think they might have even thrown in Frank Miller's Batman at some point. And then, and now it's the Atom. And you know, Roger Stern was a pretty bankable name. He was a guy who was very popular at Marvel, and he'd only left Marvel, I think, fairly recently at that point uh, over some shenanigans with Jim Shooter, probably. So they they were making sure that you knew that this guy was going to be one of their big launches, and I think they wanted to make sure they had him in the costume that he was going to be in throughout the series, even though they deal with a lot of leftover material from Sword of the Atom in the early issues of Power of the Atom. So I imagine they wanted to have like big dramatic happenings in the main book instead of dealing with it perhaps in a Secret Origins or a special that preceded it. But yeah, because uh, the early issues spend a lot of time in Morlade, the uh, fantastic city where he lives, which we'll get into more in the Secret Origin, that he had to stay in his barbarian costume for a little bit longer than they probably would have preferred. And I do think it's cool that they got the creative team from Power of the Atom to do this origin story, too. It was a nice sort of transition and setup that it's Roger Stern and Dwayne Turner were the writer and artist combo. So. If you like them here, then you're more likely to like them in the next book. It's always bothered me when you try to have this sort of tie-in book by a different creative team because you're selling the package. So I think ideally you would have the same creative team on, on a story like this. I think it was good marketing. Agreed. All right, you ready to tell our listeners the origin of the Atom? Certainly. Once upon a time, Raymond Palmer led a double life. As a research physicist at a major American university, Ray knew the respect and trust of scientists three times his age. While unbeknownst to his colleagues, he traveled the world in the superhero guise of the atom. But to the six-inch-tall man who soars through this remote corner of the Amazon jungle, both lives now seem only distant memories. The secret origin of the atom. Based in part on stories by Julius Schwartz, Gil Kane, Murphy Anderson, Jan Sternad, and the late great Gardner F. Fox. So the story starts with the Atom and his Amazon princess, Lathwin, riding on some bird of prey in the South American jungle. And Ray starts basically telling his life story to Lathwin. 
Uh, he was a typical kid of the, say, 1950s, whatever decade when you time shift it would happen to be. He was into reading Edgar Rice Burroughs. He had wooden sword fights with, you know, friends. Uh, but he was also into science, so they show him with a telescope and talk about him reading those type of works. His surrogate father, he had an actual one too, but like his second dad was an archaeologist named Ted Ralston. That helped get him really into the sciences. Then they break off and the bird lands in front of a dig site that's being overseen by Voss, who was a sort of adversarial presence in the Sword of the Atom miniseries that eventually was won over to Ray Palmer's side. And what they found is a fragment of white dwarf star material. Um, I believe that this was used in the engine for the spaceships that brought the uh, more laid people to Earth and it caused them to shrink from our dimensions. They were essentially humanoids of our same height. And unbeknownst to them, over the course of their trip to Earth, they were slowly shrinking down to six inches size and never knew any better because they landed in the middle of a jungle and for all they knew, frogs were giant on this world. So the race figured out how to adjust his density to allow him to pick up and throw this little beast of a white dwarf material, which impresses everybody with his feet of strength. And then he takes it back to Morlade where he begins to study it and he starts spouting off all this good science, talky, gobbledygook stuff. It makes you think that he's smart. I don't know what the hell he's saying, but he sounds smart to me. As he's looking over this material, he starts telling Voss and Lathwin more about his original origin when he first discovered a piece of white dwarf matter outside of uh, Ivy Town, where he comes from the United States of America. And he had seen this meteor streak across the sky. He goes looking into it. He finds this baseball-sized chunk and with all of his strength manages to drag it back to his car. He takes it to his lab where he starts testing it. He hits it with various lights like UV light. And it hits this little filament within the dwarf matter that shoots the ray at a, uh, a vacuum tube and shrinks it. And, you know, this is totally a shock to Ray. He makes a point of not letting that happen again without being under controlled circumstances. And he decides, hey, this is pretty cool. I could tell my older professors about this and then I'll be like the last name on the paper if I'm lucky. Or I can keep this a secret and continue to work on it on my own until I get it perfected so that my name's at the top, which I think is a very important character beat. Uh, which was not for the original stories, actually. If you look at the original Silver Age stories, he's just working on this shrinking ray, and they don't have that little accidental discovery of what the White Dwarf Matter could do. Here, he has his ego at play, and I think that's an important element of the character, and I'm glad that Roger Stern made that little tweak. So anyway, uh, Ray continues to work on his ray, and he's shrinking items about the lab, but the problem is the items become molecularly unstable and they explode time and again. It's an awful lot like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, if you've ever seen that movie. So while he's continuing to fail to get this thing perfected, he keeps blowing stuff up. Gene Loring shows up, and this is right out of the original origin. However, Roger Stern decides to write Gene Loring as a decent human being instead of the harridan that she was in the original stories. And he also has another element that was an important part of Silver Age stories. He has Ray Palmer propose to Gene Loring. Now, this is something he did on a weekly basis in the old Silver Age stories. It was a cute little bit. I mean, Ray definitely wanted to marry Gene Loring, but he had already kind of dealt with this rejection in the past. It was something he did with on a regular basis. He already had the diamond ring in his pocket in case she ever said yes. But in this instance, they make it look like he's really put out. He's got this sour face after he asks and is refused. That was a character beat that was added for this story, perhaps by the artist that I really didn't like, because it makes him seem like a much more aggrieved individual than he ever was in the comic books, the original comics. So... Ray has this bit where he talks about not only do I work hard, but I play hard. And his idea of playing hard is taking a bunch of kids to a cave expedition. His idea of playing hard is way different than mine. So it's him and Gene and these kids, and there's a cave in. 
in the original story, he'd taken these kids out to the middle of nowhere without telling anybody so nobody knew where they were, which was just something you could not get away with in the 1980s. You probably couldn't have gotten away with it in the 1950s. So Roger Stern does another no prize where he says, you know, one of the girls is a diabetic and there's a potential that they're going to get exposed to natural gas. So that's what flights the fire under the atom to, I mean, Ray Palmer to get this situation resolved quickly. So he decides it's worth risking his own life. He whips out the lens that he happened to be carrying in his pocket and he manages to balance it on some uh, stalagmites and shrink himself using some light that was coming in through a pinhole. So he climbs up and he manages to wedge himself in the hole and push it free, which was another retcon of Stern's. In the original story, he had saved his wedding ring to use to pull away some of the rock. I actually really like that element, so I'm sorry to not see it in this version of the story. Ray opens up uh, the opening. He jumps down, and in his haste to try to get back to the kids before he explodes, because he's expecting to go kablooey just like all the other items, he accidentally runs under the uh, lens again. And at first, he's like, oh, my God, I'm about to die. But instead, he starts to grow back again. So that's quite a relief. So he goes back. He lets the kids know about the exit point. They get away. And then we flash back to Morlade, where he's you know reciting the story. And his buddy Voss just isn't buying it. He thinks that this is a bunch of fantastic hooey. But Ray continues telling about how he uh, decided that since Jean Loring wasn't willing to marry him until she was a successful lawyer, he decided to help her with her detective cases by putting on a costume and becoming the superhero of the Atom, which led him to all sorts of fantastic adventures, fighting Kronos. He hangs out with a serious sausage factory version of the Justice League, all-male review, Hawkeye, Aquaman, Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, Batman, Barry Allen, Flash, and Martian Manhunter, uh, which is something I wish they'd given a little thought to before they drew that. We see that Ray had finally gotten to marry Jean, but they'd grown distant because he was so involved with his experiments. She got lonely. She took up with this fellow named Paul Hoban. They decided to get a separation, and while he was going to clear his head, he decided to go on an expedition to South America. Unfortunately, his plane has drug runners on it. They get into a fight. Lightning strikes the plane. The Adam ends up sailing down into the middle of the South American jungle, stuck at six inches tall, where he meets the barbarian alien warriors of Morlade. He saves the Princess Lathwin and falls for her. He fights and then befriends Voss. And now that his origin story has been told, there's an attack from outsiders to Morlade. So the warriors of Morlade, led by the Adam, you vanquish these foes. It's a bloody mess. Adam notes that, you know, it's basically a slaughter because these guys were so ill-prepared and they just couldn't handle his mighty sword plays specifically. So he's thinking, you know, now that I've got this dwarf material, I'm pretty sure I can make myself human-sized again. I could probably restore these people to their full size again. I'm not sure if they're ready for that. I'm not sure if the world is ready for them. So ultimately, he decides he's just going to continue to live out his barbarian fantasy for now with his pretty yellow princess. But there's an ominous fire burning in the distance that would play into the Power of the Atom series. All right. That is the secret origin of the Silver Age Atom. First off, I'll give my notes. Um, this story, this version by Roger Stern, does two things that I really like. The first is the little bit of showing Ray as a child playing with fake swords with his friend. I like it's it's very simple, but it cues you in because this sort of goes into the sort of preconceived stereotypes of scientist characters in this type of fiction. And I think if you go as far back into the Golden Age, the heroes of comics were sort of good at everything. You know, they they could be a wealthy millionaire playboy at peak physical condition and an expert in all forms of martial arts who also happened to be scientifically brilliant. 
you know, look at Batman, but also Starman, Mr. Terrific, half of the characters from the Golden Age were sort of like that. And it felt like there was sort of in the Silver and Bronze Age, there was almost a reaction against that by making, if you've got a scientist, then he's a very kind of nerdy, not physically capable bookworm type of scientist hero. And I, I think for a while, during the early Fantastic Four run, Stan and Jack made Reed Richards a man of action. But as the stories went along and as new creators got into him, he just became the sort of science geek. And the physicality of the book was left to, to Johnny and Ben. But I like the fact that, you know, just because you're scientifically brilliant doesn't mean you're not physically capable too. And I think we needed that reminder. So I like that Roger Stern included this tiny little moment that showed that, yeah, when Ray was a kid, he played. He was in the sport. He did physical things so that you're not so surprised that he ends up becoming this warrior king of, the, of this miniature civilization. So that was the one thing that I liked. That was the first thing I liked. The second, and you kind of mentioned this, was that while he does pretty much set up from the beginning that Ray and Jean did not have a good relationship from the start and maybe never should have been together, he doesn't characterize Jean as so insufferable as many other people characterize her. Yeah, I, here's the thing. I, I get, generally speaking, I would not have a problem with that because I, I do not like when, you know, it's the woman's fault. She's the one who cheated. So she's the, the awful person and he's the guy who's 100% in the right. But the thing is, in those Silver Age stories, she is a horrible person. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, from the beginning, she was character, she was a bitch and there was never any reason to like her. But I think in I, I think it would have been at this point in the character's history, it would have been low-hanging fruit to just keep poking at that when the story really isn't about her. Yeah, I agree. But that's the thing that I kind of like about it is that I don't think it ever really was about her. One of the things I like about the Adam is that he's such an A-type personality. You're right. He wasn't just the nerdy scientist guy. He was always in really good physical shape. He was a handsome guy. He was a very ambitious individual. He is the exact opposite of uh, Hank Pym to me. Uh, and that's part of what I love about him is that, yeah, he shrinks. He becomes six inches tall. And for most people and for the character himself in the 70s, in a mischaracterization by my reckoning, is that he has all these insecurities. He doesn't have as good of a power as everybody else. In my mind, the best way to characterize Adam is he's six inches tall. That means he's got one of the best powers of all. And he's one of the best superheroes of all in his own mind. I think that he always pursued Jean not because he was genuinely in love with her, but as an object of desire. I think that she was attractive. I think she was accomplished. She was going to be a lawyer. She was obviously highly intelligent. He valued all those aspects. And I think he valued how she would reflect him. I think she was part of his ambitious life goals. And he would pull off that ring over and over again. And he didn't really mind when she turned him down because he knew eventually it, she was a, her resistance to marriage was another challenge for him to overcome he knew that he had the manhood to, to get her on his side eventually and he's even helping her along in that condescending manner where he's going to help her lawyer career so that she'll eventually you know feel accomplished enough to go ahead and marry him which is the ultimate for her and for him so I do think that she, I think showing her to be such a, a nasty person it helps to give you the, the subtext that he's not after her because of who she is but what she represents to him Yeah, I get that. Something else you pointed out, the absence of the engagement ring that was part of the original story that he brought the ring with after he proposed to her. He still had the ring with him when they go to this cave and he uses that to help them escape. I kind of miss that. It feels like otherwise, why have that scene where he proposes to her at all? It feels sort of like Chekhov's gun. If you're going to show him taking out the wedding ring or taking out the engagement ring, have him do something with it. If if we're not going to see her accept and put it on her finger, then at least use the ring to like carve a bigger hole in the rock. It helps the kids escape. 
Yeah, again, it, it's one of those things where it undermines Ray as a character. It sets up their having a marriage that wasn't going to work out, but it doesn't uh, give him the opportunity to have the ironic twist of he's using the ring to escape instead of, you know. Anyway, so yeah, I agree with you. What did you mean when you talked about the uh, the panel that shows the Justice League members? It's all guys. There's nothing, there's no, I mean, I realized that they were still trying to figure out who was on the team at that point in time, but, you know, they'd already had the Detroit era league, you know, well into the crisis. So if nothing else, you could have Gypsy, Vixen, Zatanna, at least Zatanna, but it's nothing but guys. I I just don't understand why nobody noticed that it was nothing but a bunch of dudes and no women at all. Except Wonder Woman being gone makes sense, but I mean, even Black Canary, just a few weeks later, they would reveal that she was the new founding female of the group. So at least knowledge that she was there in the first place i i think at that point they didn't know like if she was going to be that funny i mean you're right i mean this could have been this could have been a later incarnation of the league you still could have had the ray with uh, a version of the league that we would still recognize that that is a little bit more current to include those characters but i i really think it was it was a last minute decision when they decided to make black canary the character for like for a while they were thinking the founding league was just going to be the four guys flash green lantern aquaman and martian manhunter with batman sort of tangentially in the background and they said no it's got to be more than that that doesn't feel right so i think when this image was drawn they didn't know who the first female on the team was going to be well, it didn't necessarily have to be the founders, though. I mean, Adam himself wasn't a founding member of the Justice League, so it's more associated with the Satellite League. I'd have just drawn those guys instead. That's true. Yeah, curious, because even, I mean, Adam and Hawkman both came to the League after Green Arrow, and Green Arrow isn't in this picture either. Mm-hmm. So. One of my other notes, and this is just the, the storytelling convention because we need Ray to have a reason to tell this story to people. So you've got this character of Voss basically saying, that eh, couldn't have happened. I love it when there is a skeptic mm-hmm. in a group that is obviously from some sort of fantastical or otherworldly culture. Like, he's an alien that came from a different world who was in this crash landing that because of the way the ship crashed, shrunk their culture, and now he's in the middle. But he has a problem with the science of Ray's story. <laughs> I, I love when we get things like that. It's a good possibility. I mean, I, I do like that. I like the skeptic angle. But at the same time, this was a very isolated group. Uh, they'd been on Earth for centuries, if not millennia. So I, I think that they would reasonably be dubious that this one guy who's the same height as them, who just happens to be pink-skinned, would actually come from a whole other culture, a whole other part of the world with all these fantastic adventures. I, I kind of understand where Voss is coming from in that particular circumstance. It just makes more sense that he just be this weird pink mutant that was out in the boonies somewhere. But I think by this, by this point, like... Voss and some of the other people like Lathwin, they had had encounters with the normal humans of Earth. Like they had seen the bigger people in some of those sort of the Adam specials. Yeah, and I know that he grew in one of the specials too. Yeah. It's 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 yeah, I, I can see both sides of it. Yeah. Those were pretty much my notes for this story. I, it was good. I like when the origin isn't just a recap of previous stories, but actually furthers the adventures of this character. And this one does set up. Roger Stern took this as an opportunity to set the stage for where Ray and these other characters would be when he starts the new series. That's the advantage of having, like we said, the same creative team uh, on the book that's going to springboard it into a new series. What did you think of the origin overall? 
the thing is, I've never been a huge fan of the Adam's Origin. It's it's serviceable. It does the job it needs to, but I don't think it's one of those that anybody like. Oh, we got to put that to film. You know, it's not. It's nothing really all that special. So I liked that by framing it within the context of the sort of the Adam series, that gave you something more visually stimulating to look at than a, you know a guy in a lab hanging out or a guy you know in a cave climbing around. It gave you something more interesting to look at. It also gave him an opportunity to have the battle sequence toward the end, and it also he did the whole career over review which i'm a fan of on support i like it when they tell you where the character was and and the whole arc of the career rather than just focusing on the secret origin itself so i thought he did a really good job with it i think he did the best job he could given the material he had to work with for the most part i really appreciated his his continuity patches that made the character more believable um so yeah overall i think this is one of the better secret origins yeah, the one thing that I have always liked about the actual origin, not necessarily just this story, but the origin was that he didn't come up with this power and then arbitrarily decide, I'm going to use this to fight crime. The actual, the first time he uses this power is to save lives, and he does it out of a sense of desperation, that he has to put his own ass on the line and use this power, even though it might kill him, in order to save people. And then it's only after that that he figures out, okay, once this works... Now I can use this to my advantage to both eh, bring some criminals to justice and also help make my girlfriend feel a little bit more comfortable about me. So, But I, I do like that the initial spark, that the motivator for his heroic turn is a selfless act to protect people, to protect kids specifically. Well, it's funny, though, because I, I like to get into the psychology of Ray Palmer, and I, I do think ultimately it is a heroic act. I do think that there was no reason why Ray would assume that he was going to survive this act. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, I think he's such an egotist that it would have been intolerable for him to be responsible for all those deaths as well. And he'd rather die himself before he even knew that he would be responsible for those deaths before it ever got to that point. So I, I think it kind of works both in he is a hero, but you can also play the, the counter argument that his psychology demanded him to make that sacrifice. That's part of what defines the character for me, and and I'm a big believer. I hate the incestuous qualities of having creators going back and forth between Marvel and DC and taking concepts back and forth until you ended up with this muddy homogeneity of, of the both the universes. I like it when they're very distinct. So if the Marvel Universe's iconic shrinking character is Hank Pym, a guy who's riddled with insecurities, a guy who has a seriously questions his identity, a guy who has a loving relationship with Van Dyne, Van Dyne but a mistake that he makes ends up separating them and then he, they reunite and they separate over and over again and you don't really see see Hank with any other women. It doesn't work. He's always meant to be with Janet and yet there's that original sin of him slapping her and never quite being able to get over that. All the different identities, the fact that he's a shrinking hero that's only a shrinking hero about a quarter of the time. The rest of the time he's growing or he's flying with stingers and all this other kind of stuff. So this is a guy who's very all over the place and a guy who is deeply invested in his super team too. Hank doesn't ever seem to work very well as a soloist. So I like when you go across the street to DC where this is a guy who's very, you know, crystalline. He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly who he wants. He's an A-type. He's not just a, a, a great mind, but he's also a physical dynamo. I love that he's a guy who just, he's, he's the shrinking hero. He, they did do that bit during the Teen Titans period where he would grow. But for the most part, he's the guy who's always a shrinking hero. He's always the guy who makes that work for him. And especially in the 90s onwards, when you'd make guest appearances in books, guys like Grant Morrison and Mark Wade would figure out ways to show just how awesome the Adam is and mm-hmm. how this guy could be an A-lister if he really, you know, given the opportunity. 
I, I like that he's not the guy who's going to question his value to the JLA. He's a guy who, if anything, I would think would overestimate his value. Um, so he and it also, Ant Man. I hate to tell you, you probably already aware of this. Kind of a ripoff of the Atom. Okay, and Ant Man. I mean, the Atom himself is kind of a ripoff of Doll Man. You've got that continuity there. But one of the things that was great about the Atom in the Silver Age specifically, besides the fact that he was drawn by Gil Kane and that Kane managed to get Sid Green to ink him. Sid Green is one of the best inkers in the history of comics and certainly one of Gil Kane's preferred inkers. He also worked with him on Green Lantern. Is that in the Silver Age, after all the stuff with Frederick Wortham and you know the, the, the Senate committees looking into comics, all the superhero stories were very bland. They were based around gimmicks. They were always trying to find a way to, like say, throw a net on the villain. They didn't want to be violent. They didn't want to be sexual. And then here comes the Adam as drawn by Gil Kane and Sid Green, where, you know, you have gorgeous women and this guy's in a skin tight outfit looking great while he's kicking all kinds of butt. And he's such a physical presence. I think because he's a tiny little figure fighting grown figures, they allowed him to have a much greater degree of violence in his stories. They're really like though you're feeling those punches. He's bringing that weight down on people's heads. It's gloriously violent which is something that doesn't necessarily carry into the modern age, it's hard to understand how refreshing that would have been in the 1960s. This guy was a big hit when he came out. People forget that the Atom was like the last big hit that Julie Schwartz had when he was bringing back the superheroes. You also had Hawkman, but Hawkman struggled, especially in the early days, to get it, find an audience. Uh, the fans really rejected Joe Kubert's take on the character. It wasn't until Murphy Anderson started doing him in, I think it was flashback ups, that people started paying attention to Hawkman. The Atom was a big hit right out of the gate. That's why he joined the Justice League so early on. He had really strong sales. He was one of DC's top 10, top 20 characters in the early 60s. That's why he got to be on the cartoon. And I've always had an inflated sense of Adam's importance. Because for me, the Adam was one of the memorial heroes. He was I can't tell you when I first saw this character, he was always there, just like Cap and Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman. He was on the Filmation cartoons. It wasn't until you know, within the last decade or so, I realized they only ever made three of those Adam solo shorts for the uh, Superman Aquaman hour. He only appeared in three of the Justice League shorts from that show. He appeared sporadically on Super Friends. But to me, he was always part of the Justice League. He was always in the cartoons. There was merchandise featuring this character. So I always saw him as one of the greats of comics, one of the big guns. And it took me years to realize that his heyday was, you know, over with by the late 60s. You know, that's why they ended up in the bifurcated Adam and Hawkman series, because neither one of those guys could carry a book anymore so he stuck them together sometimes as team ups sometimes as individual adventures in the same book because they couldn't support themselves anymore he was a big hit and then he went away but i've always seen the potential in that character and i'd love to see him treated with the kind of respect that he was treated with both in the 60s and in some of the more recent modern age appearances by writers who understand what that character potential happens to be and you said it like right from the beginning with your contrasting him versus the ant-man Ray Palmer, essentially, even though considered one of the most brilliant minds in the DC universe, is a man of action. And that is sort of that, that fundamental aspect of him being in the DC universe. And that's why I think when I first saw the Sword of the Atom, I was like, really? Putting him in this weird, okay, kind of whatever. And then I started reading it. I was like, yeah, this makes perfect sense. I love him in this setting. It's not necessarily where I would want the character to be trapped forever, but within the context of these stories, of putting him in this weird sort of fantastical setting, the sword and sorcery type of you know genre of him fighting with these tiny little people in the Amazon jungles because it gives it an alien flavor that is still grounded on our Earth, and then you can get him riding giant frogs or fighting snakes and all of these like cool aspects that I just... The, the visual aesthetics that you could do with things of a character like this at that scale are really cool, and... And when you have that, you want it to be 
a Conan type of story. You want him fighting giant monsters, even if it's just a garden variety spider. You want the scale, so you want your hero to have that sense of epic, you know, uh, I'm a badass, that, that sort of confidence. And, yeah, that's and I think that's what he brings. Yeah, that's something they struggled with in the series, too, because most of the book was the Adam at six-inch size fighting hoods in cheap suits with revolvers, and that gets very tiresome. And then, of course, you'd occasionally have those stories where he's fighting a common house cat, which worked great for Richard Matheson, but it doesn't work well for a shrinking superhero because superheroes are meant to be aspirational. You're meant to want to be in their position, and nobody's impressed when you fight a house cat. So one thing that I thought they did really well with Sword of the Atom is they found a way of making the shrinking a cool aspect. He's riding the bullfrog. He's riding Major Mina, his bird. Uh, he's fighting snakes and spiders, so at least it's stuff that would be fearsome at giant size under ordinary circumstance where it's harder to get excited about, oh, no, it's a rat. Beware the giant rat. Those are kind of lame. So that was an important aspect. Uh, if you look at the original series, it always was a much more interesting book when the fantasy elements came in, which was way too sporadic. And they started doing that more often toward the end of the, the original run because I think they recognized by that point they needed those fantastic elements. When you just have them dealing with common everyday items, whether it's in a, a realistic world or in the, the shrunken world where he's fighting you know, a tire – it's, it's just not as exciting. So you have to find a way of making the shrinking cool and he should own it uh, instead of fearing it, which is something that they use a nasty default with shrinking stories in general. I would want to say that I think one of the character's greatest weaknesses is his rogues gallery. It wasn't until I started working on the blog that I began investigating that and I realized he has got just seriously one of the worst rogues collections of any superhero ever. If you look at the original stories, he's really only got three guys that are noteworthy. Jason Woodrue, the plant master. Kronos, the time bandit, who originally was just a guy who had watch-themed weapons, but to some degree that actually works better than him having time travel powers. That was something that didn't even come in until the 90s. And once you get out of that that funky costume, the character himself is actually fairly cool, and especially as originally envisioned by Gil Kane, he had this super creepy gimp mask that I wish they'd kept up with because he, it makes him very unnerving. Um, but Honestly, I think his best villain was the Bug-Eyed Bandit, if you can believe that. Because the Bandit was a scientist who created these insects that were robots that had all these cool powers, it gave the Atom something to fight where he didn't have to have another shrinking foe. And, you know, he had a decent look. The name is terrible. And I understand he was killed by in crisis by Marv Wolfman specifically because Wolfman didn't want to work in a comic book universe that would have Bug-Eyed Bandit exist in it. But he actually worked extremely well, and I think that Roger Stern recognized that. He brought in uh, Bertram Larvin's son to play the character Sting in a few appearances. He's popped up in recent years. And, of course, they've got a Bug-Eyed Bandit by another name appearing on The Flash that seems to have worked out reasonably well as well. I think that would work in a modern sort of retelling with all that we know about nanotechnology of sort of using like the sort of microscopic cybernetic and robotic foils that way. I mean, you could give, you could give, of course, this is another Ant-Man comparison, but you could give Adam his own sort of Ultron and have him fight this kind of like army of like Ultron drones that are just these nanotechnology like bots infesting some living host that he has to fight with at a tiny scale. I think that would be really cool if they did something with that. Absolutely. But unfortunately, the Bug-Eyed Bandit appeared like twice. Sting appeared a couple of times in Adam's stories. So the, it, it, he just he never seems to get any traction on the villain front. Um, so that's a major issue for the character, I think. For some reason, I always think of Dr. Light as an Adam villain. And Dr. Light actually appeared in Justice League first, but his second appearance was in the Adam. I honestly think that the Adam may have contributed to the downfall of Dr. Light. <laughs> 
<laughs> he started out as a Justice League villain. I think his second appearance was in an Adam, essentially a solo adventure. It was a situation yeah. where it's in an Adam book. It involves the Justice League, but the Adam's the one who eventually defeats him. And so I think that he went from the guy who fights the Justice League to the guy who fights the Adam, and he never quite recovered from that. To the guy who fights maybe Green Lantern, to the guy who fights the Teen Titans, to the guy who... To the sodomite. Because <laughs> eventually, because where else do you go? Yeah. Okay. Recommended readings. Um, I mean, th- this character, he's got a couple versions of Showcase Presents that you can find his old black and whites. There are some archive editions. I think in terms of trades, the only one that I know of is the Sword of the Atom trade, which I highly recommend. It collects the four-issue series and the three specials. But other than that, has, has any of his stories been reprinted? Again, this is an issue. Is I really like the Ray Palmer Adam... Uh, as opposed to the other Adams, because I think that he just has the right personality type to carry off the being a shrieking hero. But he doesn't really inspire great stories, or at least it hasn't to date. Uh, if, if you look at the showcase presents, they kind of all sort of run together. They're great looking, you know, the art's gorgeous, but the stories are just kind of samey, samey. None of them really stand out. If you go to the Power of Adam series, nothing stands out all that great there. Um, from, I'd, obviously, the highest recommendation would be to the Sword of the Atom trade paperback. The original miniseries is great. I think the spe- second special is also great. The first special is a bore because it just basically recaps mm-hmm. Adam's history. And the third special is a bizarre thing because it was drawn by Pat Broderick. And about the first half of the special is a total snooze. It's just the worst kind of fantasy material. And then halfway through the story, it takes this twist. And it becomes like a zombie story. Exactly. And <laughs> today, that's not that big of a thing because there's so everybody's done a zombie story. I mean, one of the other books you could recommend for the Adam is Blackest Night, which is a pretty good representation of the character. But reading that, when I read it in the 90s and when it came out in the mid-80s, all of a sudden you've got these children with worm maggots eating out their eyes. And it's like, what the heck just happened? It, what? Yeah, oh, yeah, that one. Not see it coming. And it's very effective. Pat Broderick uh, has a little recognized talent for horror. And so that makes that a really excellent package. But beyond that, the, the story that made me an Adam fan was the Adam Special Number 1, which came out in the early 90s. It was by Tom Pyre and Steve Dillon. Steve Dillon, yeah, that's the Steve yeah. Dillon. Yeah. And, and Dillon is not somebody that I typically would want to see draw superhero characters, but he draws the classic Adam so well. It looks so good. And that particular story was the Adam kind of going through his his career again, but in a new way, a way that's very psychologically devastating to him and also gives you an opportunity to see Kronos in a new light. And I, I just think it's a great introduction to the character. I think it's worth seeking out. Um, it's good-looking book, well-written. I'm a big fan of Tom Pyre in general. So that first special, if you can find it, you can probably pick it up pretty cheap. I definitely recommend that. Not the second special. Drawn by Luke McDonald. It dealt with him being turned into a teenager, setting him up for the Teen Titans run during Zero Hour. That's not good stuff. Don't read that, please. Yeah, unfortunately, I got the second special pretty cheap, but I haven't found the uh, the first special in the back yeah. issue, Diamond. I, I love the cover to that first special, the one that you're talking about by Steve Dillon. Like, that's one of the best like single like poster type of images of the Atom that I've ever seen. Yeah, what's funny is that was actually his second try. I've got a, a DC solicitation catalog where they're showing all their stuff from the year that special came out. And he, his, the first version was pretty good, too, but it's also Steve Dillon in a similar pose. But it took him two drives to get to that, at least. Um, and also, the Adam has a tendency to have really solid appearances in bad books that are high profile. I thought that he was the best thing in The Dark Knight Strikes Again, his sequence where you find him fighting yeah. amoeba in a Petri dish. 
Uh, I thought he was really good in the Justice miniseries by Jim Kruger and Alex Ross, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. overall wasn't a great story, but he was good in it. And I thought that James Robinson's characterization of him in Cry for Justice was solid. Again, uh, not a good book, but he looked pretty cool uh, when he was in, in the painted sections, and I thought he was very well characterized. And also, he was in a really the best Dan Jurgen story arc from his uh, Justice League run, Destiny's Hand, which ran from issues seventy two through seventy five. The Atom isn't a major player in much of the story, but he's very important to its resolution. And that's just a great story about the Justice League satellite era team becoming fascists and the kind of a ragtag group that Wonder Woman puts together trying to stop them in this alternate universe. You reminded me of uh, one of my favorite multimedia appearances of the Atom was in uh, Justice League United, where he was voiced by John C. McGinley. I was reminded of it because it starts off with him in a Petri dish, fighting like something like some metal worm amoeba thing. But it ends, I think it was Warren Ellis wrote the episode, uh, and it ends with this, there's this weird sort of alien brood thing that's developing these bugs that are going to overrun the world, and... Adam has to get into basically the heart of this like sort of spaceship slash creature to deactivate it, and he needs to get through the battlefields where all the other Justice League guys are kind of keeping these things at bay, and Wonder Woman to carry him through the battlefield picks him up and puts him in her cleavage. Essentially, it's a great visual joke. It's cheap, of course, it's a cheap joke, but it's very effective because they don't. There's not crass about it. They don't draw attention to it. It just happens very simply, and I just think. Yeah, he he gets to ride between her breasts at that point as she's going through a battlefield and drop him off into the spot where he gets to save the day. Somewhere on my blog, I have a cosplay of that where uh, uh, someone had put an Adam figure between her cleavage as she was playing Wonder Woman. It was awesome. <laughs> very nice, very cool. That was an excellent choice for a voice actor as well because his character on Scrubs is not completely uh, out of the realm of, of my thinking of way Adam, Ray Palmer should be approached. Um, before wrapping up this, um, just sort of not Ray Palmer, but what did you think about the Ryan Choi version of the Adam in the all new Adam series? Uh, I have a, I've, I've mentioned this, uh, many a times. I don't really like the Peter Parker type characters, uh, in comics in general, and especially it applied to DC characters. And to me, Ryan Choi was too much that type. He wanted the people to like him too much. I kind of like an Adam that doesn't care whether you like him or not. Um, I also, I have, as much as I want representation in comics, I think that having the Asian guy who's a scientist who shrinks kind of gets to a squicky place. You know, I actually had an easier time with Rania Pineda when she was briefly the Adam, and I was kind of sorry to see how her story played out. I was kind of jazzed. I, th- I thought that she looked better in the Adam costume. Another problem I had with Choi was that the redesign of the Adam suit was terrible. I think that the Silver Age Adam has one of the best costumes in the history of comic books. So anytime you start to screw with it, I start to have problems. And usually they're just tweaks. Uh, the power of the Adam suit, they basically just uh, remove the skull cap. When Dan Jurgens redesigned him for Teen Titans, he kind of played around with the upper portion, but he left the lower portion alone. So when Ryan Choi goes in there and he has this really kind of funky asymmetrical suit. I, I just hated that. Where Pineta's suit was much closer to the classic Adam, and, it, and she wore that well. So I'm more of a fan of Pineta than I am of Choi, but I will say that Choi's probably had more consistent quality in his adventures. I think Gail Simone's run on that book was solid, and I especially liked when Eddie Barrows was drawing it. It was a great-looking book with Barrows on it. I kind of come down to that same thing. I'm, I, I'm one of those guys. I, I prefer the classic versions of the characters, so when I think of the Adam, I think of this version. I think of Ray Palmer, but... I really liked that series uh, with the all-new Adam. I think it's one of the best things that Gail Simone has written, from my view. Um, I, I really like the adventures, and I think even Rick Remender, I think, ended up, like, concluded the series after she left. It, it was fun. I, I, 
I kind of agree with your take on Ryan Choi as a character, but they were very fun adventures. So I wouldn't mind seeing more wackiness brought into the DCU that that story had. It's funny. I love Ray Palmer, and I don't typically like Ray Palmer stories. I don't like Ryan Choi, but I like Ryan Choi stories. So if they <laughs> just mix them correctly, I'd be a happy man. There you go. Uh, all right. Well, Diablo Frank, where can people find you online if they want to hear more of your thoughts about The Atom or Martian Manhunter or anything else? Well, uh, Rollspine network of podcasts, you can find that at uh, the WordPress blog, or if you just put Rollspine into Google, you'll find it. Um, but because this is an Atom-centric episode, I'm just going to go ahead and pimp the Power of the Atom blog, where I do uh, not only an Atom podcast, but also a Captain Atom podcast. So I like to kind of you know keep it fresh. I haven't done a new episode in a while. I'm planning on getting more uh, proactive with that in 2016, though. They're usually only about five minutes. I like having a micro podcast so that it keeps up with the theme. So you can knock them out really quick and a nice brisk little you know, summary of the stories. Oh, it's nice. I enjoy it. I, I was listening to those episodes again while I was walking my dogs last night. So, Well, Diablo Frank, thank you one more time for being on the Secret Origins podcast. And folks, please do not go away because I'll be back after this break with the Secret Origin of Red Tornado. Probably not the Red Tornado that you're thinking of. It's time for some thrilling heroics, a brand new podcast on twotruefreaks.com. Keep flying, a Firefly podcast. We aim to do the impossible, cover every episode of Joss Whedon's science fiction space opera western, and that makes us mighty. We found as fine a crew as ever populated the podcasting verse. I told them I had a job, they said yes. Didn't much care what it was. So join me, Andrew Leyland. I fought for the independence. May have been the losing side. Not so sure it was the wrong one. I'm joined by a man too pretty to die, Mr. Paul Spataro. And last, but by no means least, a man with a mighty fine hat, Shepherd Bill Robinson. So join us on TutuFreaks.com for Keep Flying, a Firefly podcast. We aim to misbehave. My next guest is making his first appearance on this show, but he's certainly no stranger to podcasting. He's the host of Avengers Inspirations, which he does with his daughter, Lily, and he also created the Golden Age Superman podcast and the New 52 Adventures of Superman podcast. Please welcome John M. Wilson. How are you, John? I am doing well, Ryan. I'm here to talk about some comics characters from a long time ago, and I am super excited. Well, I am super excited to have you on. I, I, I really greatly enjoy your enthusiasm about these. Uh, and I do. I definitely want to talk to you a little bit about Avengers Inspirations, because I have been enjoying that show a lot. But before that, I, I need to ask you, you created a podcast based on Superman in the New 52. Yes, I How did. is that going right now? 
the podcast or the reading? <laughs> Both. <laughs> well, the podcast, you know, life and busyness and time and everything, I kind of had to put my podcasting efforts, I had to choose. And so it's it has suffered a little bit and that I haven't put out a new episode in a while. So I feel bad because I want to put more episodes out there. In fact, I have guests lined up who did reading for me and are probably kind of annoyed that they have these notes and nothing to do with them. So yes, it is still a going concern in my mind. I just need to get more episodes out there. Um, the reading of New 52 Superman has been interesting. Um, I kind of took a break for a year whenever the truth story was getting ready to break. I guess right whenever truth started getting announced. Okay. The uh, sentiments on the internet were so overwhelming to me that I was like, you know what? I actually found my ability to enjoy comics affected, which is not to make anybody in particular out there feel bad because people have their opinions and whatever. But just my own personal reaction was I can't really read Superman comics right now because, you know, it's hard to enjoy them. But over the last few weeks, I have been going back and rereading the entire last year of Superman comics. So I've been reading truth in concentrated form for the last couple weeks. And it has been an interesting experience. I don't know how much in detail you want me to go into it, but uh, I find myself rather surprised that the story has taken the turn that it has, but not displeased. So let's talk about Avengers Inspirations. What made you decide to do a podcast, A, with your daughter, and B, why tackle something as vast as seemingly the entire Marvel Universe? So Lily is awesome. Uh, she and I have been reading comics since the uh, shortly after the Iron Man movie came out, which was when she was six years old. And I got into podcasting within a year after that. And so I guessed it on From Crisis to Crisis a few times. I had my own shows I was getting going. Um, I was uh, a number two guy on an Ultimate Spider-Man podcast. And I started up a Spider-Man podcast. I started up a Golden Age Superman podcast. And she was just there for a lot of this. And a lot of times she would make little appearances both on my own shows and whenever I showed up on other people's shows. So whenever it was finally getting to a point where she was old enough to like carry her own end of a conversation, I thought it would be really great to talk about Avengers comics, especially since the Avengers movies were out and new and everybody was loving them. So I asked her, we were on a road trip. I was driving along. It's amazing how much you get podcast ideas whenever you're driving down the highway. Maybe this just happens to me. No, but, I'm with you. Um, I'm with you. <laughs> So I asked her in the hotel one as we were driving across country. I was like, hey, Lily, you want to do a podcast? And she's like, um, maybe. <laughs> and I asked her if she would just want to talk about some of the early issues that featured the characters from the Avengers films. And at that time, there were just like five. The, the phase one right, films right, were all right. we had at the time. So she said, sure. And she actually misunderstood me. She thought I meant just the first issue. <laughs> So whenever I was going into the second and third issues of the character, she's like, what? But she was, you know, amenable. She didn't, she didn't kick me out of the family or anything. So, and so we're just podcasting along talking about the comics. And then we started wanting, whenever age of Ultron was approaching, we decided to go back and do our rewatch and commentary as we went along. And that has basically become an intrinsic part of the show. That's probably never going to go away is talking about the Marvel cinematic universe itself. Yeah. Uh, while we talk about the uh, comics that feature those characters. And that's been a lot of fun. And she has gone from a precocious 11 year old to a um, almost 14 year old, uh, it's, 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 it's been an interesting growth for her. Well, it is definitely a fun show to listen to. I, I like your rapport. I like the energy that you both bring to the topics. It's, it's a lot of fun. Well, thank you for saying so. She's great. And folks, so we've talked about Superman podcasts. We've talked about Avengers podcasts. By now, you can probably guess 
that John is here to talk about the origin of Red Tornado. Dun-dun-dun! And no, that is not the popular android Red Tornado who joined the Justice League of America. We're talking about the Golden Age Red Tornado, the cross-dressing costumed alter ego of Ma Hunkel, who first appeared in the Scribbly feature of All American Comics. Scribbly told the wacky misadventures of a boy cartoonist who was, in essence, a stand-in for the strip's creator, Sheldon Mayer. In All-American Issue 3, Mayer introduced Ma Hunkel, a heavyset woman who runs a grocery store frequented by Scrib. But in late 1941, Mayer had Ma Hunkel put on a poorly fashioned costume that looked deliberately garish, even by Golden Age standards, and an overturned pot on her head that would disguise her identity. In All-American Comics Issue 20, Ma Hunkel became the Red Tornado, one of, possibly the, first female superhero in comics. One month after her debut, the Red Tornado appeared for a single page in the historic All-Star Comics Issue 3, which was co-written by Mayer along with Gardner Fox. Yes, the rotund Red Tornado appeared in the same issue that assembled The Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, and other heroes under the title of Justice Society of America. She attended the meeting of the first-ever super team, but had to leave suddenly because she split her pants climbing in through the window. Red Tornado was Mayer's parody of the crime-busting superhero. Still appearing in the scribbly humor strip, her exploits were meant to be comical and sometimes embarrassing. Her ridiculous costume was intended to disguise her gender, as Wonder Woman was still a couple of months away from breaking onto the scene and thrusting women into the role of legitimate action hero in comic books. Ma Hunkel hung around for Scribbly's adventures in All-American Comics until 1944, at which point, according to my notes, she disappeared from publication. Possibly until this issue of Secret Origins. Do you know if she appeared anywhere else during like the Silver or Bronze Age? No, as far as I know, she did not. I don't think she really was referred to again until JSA. Yeah, that's what I thought. And according to Roy Thomas's notes in the back matter of this issue and in the All-Star Companion Volume 4, it was his idea to bring someone in to write a two-page Red Tornado origin. Young editor Mark Wade reached out to Red Tornado's creator, Sheldon Mayer, who was over 70 years old at the time this came out, and Mayer came back with a three-page written and illustrated Red Tornado story that is not an origin story at all. Do you have anything else to say about the character's publication history before we get into the story? No, that's basically it. I have a lot of experience with... I say a lot of experience. I've read all those old scribblies. I've read his entire run that precedes uh, Red Tornado. And they're, they're, they're tons of fun. So whenever he was being published by Dell before DC over popular comics and the funnies, I read that whole run. And yeah, I mean, I can talk more about the story in detail, but I guess we can do that after we get into this story itself. Sure. Uh, and then just so Rob Kelly doesn't think we forgot, Sheldon Mayer also created Sugar and Spike. And you can hear him talk about that on every episode of Who's Who podcast, where he complains that they weren't in any issues of Who's Who. So, John, are you ready to tell us about the kind of secret origin of Red Tornado? Yes. So, when you asked me to do, uh, or, you know, when I said I want to do the Red Tornado, I had not actually read this bit in Secret Origins. So, I got to this and I was like, huh, this is not what I was expecting. 
So what you have is Scribbly, who is a boy cartoon artist. He's, you know, a Billy Batson-ish kind of character, but he he dresses, you know, in suit and tie and everything. Like a grown-up, he's just small. He tells some cops about some crooks who were trying to sell his his you know brothers some stuff, and the cops ask him if he beat up the crooks, and of course he didn't. He's small, and he says, "No, no, no, it wasn't me. It was the red tornado." And he takes the cops to a store that's right nearby where Ma Hunkle, who's a grown up, and of course will be more believed. Uh, should have seen the entire thing. So he raps on the window, hey, Ma Hunkle, you know, tell these cops what happened. Ma Hunkle is leaned over on the display case of her shop with her head propped up on her arm, fast asleep. And she's not moving either. She is sawing logs. So she cannot corroborate the story that Scribbly is telling the cops. So Scribbly um, says, oh, look, and one of the thugs just got up and ran off. So he runs after the, the guy. The cops are following a little ways behind. The guy runs down this alleyway and we see the red tornado frying pot pan thing on, you know, for, for a helmet, sort of Irving Forbush style. But before that, so cooler. She grabs a trash can lid, smacks the guy in the face. Scribbly runs up just in time to see him collapse. The cops run up just in time to see Scribbly standing over this guy's prone body. And he's like, no, I swear it was the red tornado. Let's wake up Ma Hunkle. Maybe she did see something. And I should say that all this time, the red tornado is getting male pronouns because everyone is under the impression the red tornado is a dude. And of course, she's built in such a way that with a little bit of padding, it's 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 a little bit hard to tell. We then cut to a meanwhile scene back at the shop where the red tornado comes into the back of the shop and lets the air out of the Ma Hunkle balloon that had been propped up over the display case. She takes off her costume, switches scenes with her doppelganger and pretends to wake up as Scribbly and the cops come in. And uh, she's, yeah, she can't tell him anything. She's like, what's so terrible about being a famous hero? And Scribbly's just kind of upset because no one will believe him. He knows it was the Red Tornado, but they think it's, you know, he's the one who beat him up. So anyways, it just kind of ends on a comedic note about if he had been a hero, then all of the girls in his life would have fussed big over him, like Clover Cooley and Margie something and Gladys Turner. And we sort of end on a note of him mooning over the, you know, the chances he'd have with these girls. (laughs) So it's 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 a very whimsical, lighthearted tale, and I kind of went into detail on it just because it is so short. And yeah, that's the end. No, not an origin at all. Just a little scribbly red tornado strip. Yeah, exactly. It's the first time I read this. I think I just I wasn't in the right headspace for it because I got to the end and I was like, okay, it was short, but what am I missing? This isn't a story, and I, I just think I need to put it down. I came back to it a day later. I'm like, oh my god, this is delightful. <laughs> this is such yeah. a charming, fun little story. Is it an origin story? Nope. We get no sense of why Ma Hunkle puts on this costume or what inciting incident would have caused her to do that. This completely breaks away from the mold of this, the whole premise of this series. But it doesn't matter. Because it's three pages, it cost them nothing to put this in the book other than, I think Roy Thomas says, now they didn't have space for the letters page because he was expecting it to be a two-page story. It's delightful. It's, it's so charming. And it makes me want to go back and read those scribbly stories by Sheldon Mayer. What'd you think? Um, it was a surprise in the fact that it wasn't an origin, but it was, it's exactly in the vein of the stories. Um, 
Scribbly was basically Sheldon Mayer got a very young start in the cartooning industry. And so and so Scribbly was a sort of young stand in for himself. And the old Scribbly strips are all about this boy cartoonist trying to get a job in an adult cartoonist world. And so how a kid with talent is treated by adults is sort of a running theme. And it's all comedic and it's all lighthearted. And eventually his uh, his his adventures get picked up by DC Comics. And beginning with All-American Comics, number one, he meets this boy, Billy Hunkel. Um, and at first they fight because they're boys. But then they become best friends because they're boys. <laughs> and he goes over to Billy's house to meet his mom and he not only meets his, you know, large, beefy, hitch over the head with a rolling pin mother, but like four or five different uncles and grandfathers who live with them. And it's just this huge family of old people who all love kids, but they're all kind of ornery and scraggly and, and just it's just great. After a little bit of time, there's a storyline where Billy and Scribbly it starts out, they're sitting around one day reading All-American Comics because in D.C., if you're in a comic book, you're probably going to have people who read that same comic in the comic. It happened with Action, it happened with All-American, it happened with Detective. And my uncle comes in, is like, what are y'all reading? And they're all excited about the brand new Green Lantern character, the All-American Comics debuted with issue 16. This is like 17 or 18 along uh, that this is happening. And, and she's this idea of somebody putting on wildly colored clothes, garish design, and beating up bad guys. She's like, huh, that sounds kind of fun. All right. Well, you know, you kids have fun there. And uh, that issue or the next issue, both boys get captured by somebody. They get kidnapped by some random, random bad guy. And so Ma Hunkle gets the notion in her head that she, if Green Lantern can do it, if it's good enough for Green Lantern, it's good enough for Ma Hunkle. So she finds some brightly colored clothes and puts a, a puts a stew pot on her head to cover up her face. And in this garb as the Red Tornado, she goes out and saves her son and his friend. And so that's kind of that's that's where this character comes from. And it goes on to be a parody of, like you said, of the superhero genre. And in Scribbly. She's considered a cross-dresser, and everyone refers to the Red Tornado as a male. Mm -hmm. In All-Star Comics, everyone knows that she's female, and actually they call her the Red Tomato mm -hmm. most of the time in the, in, the, in the scene more than the Red Tornado. It's like they're making a joke, but they, they make it like five times. So anyways, this was right in line with that lighthearted, just fun it's it's the kind of story that makes you realize where these things got the name comic books. Yeah, yeah. Does it belong here? Maybe not necessarily, but it's it's a delightful little treat. And God, you know, stuff like this and what Sheldon Mayer was able to do again at this age, because according to the stories, I mean, he was over seventy when this came out, and he had had health problems the year before, and he was recovering when Mark Wade approached him and asked him if he could do something, and he churned this out and. God, it makes you appreciate the short form of these comic stories that were the norm back then. I mean, just to, to have this full story with multiple punchlines and setups and beats and everything in just three pages. Gosh, this is this is a talented piece of work. And and the designs, like there's so much character in these these faces that you just mm -hmm. 
Oh, I, I love it. I this makes me like I said, this makes me want to go back and read those scribblies or Sugar and Spike and yeah. It really is cartooning mm-hmm. at 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 its finest. And in those early, early comics, whenever they were just trying to put as much content in a book as possible, a lot of times your strip would only be one page mm-hmm. or two pages or four pages. And so unless you wanted to do a uh, a running serial, which a lot of people did, you had to find a way to tell an entire story or at least enough of a story to be engaging in one, two, or four pages. And that was the environment that Mayer came into. And, of course, he got the chance to do a lot longer pages uh, stories with Scribbly. After Red Tornado was no longer being published, Scribbly got his own comic again with other companies. Sheldon Mayer always kept the character. He never – He never. Um, well, he may have sold it eventually because now DC is doing Scribbly without him. But he did do Scribbly without DC again later on. And so, yeah, three three pages – all done. It, it sits kind of oddly between the Adam and Mr. America, but I'm not sure exactly how much Secret Origins made it a point to make the characters line up thematically. It seems like sometimes they did and sometimes they just did not care. Sometimes they, they might have been crunching a deadline and they got the stories when they got the stories. Certainly there were a few attempts earlier on, like when they put Dead Man and the Spectre in some issues together. But this one, it's like, no, there's no reason these characters necessarily go together. But, yeah, it's it's this nice little sort of interlude. Do you have any other notes on this specific story? I mean, as short as it is, it's it's not the shortest story in Secret Origins. That honor still goes to Amazing Man, which was only one page. <laughs> um, but did you have any other notes for this story? No, only that all of the old Scribblies, the pre-All-American Comics ones, the ones from Dell, are available at the Digital Comics Museum, mm-hmm. which is a website because they're all... Um, not open store, public domain. Public domain. Yeah. They're all public domain. So um, you can go on to digitalcomicsmuseum.com and legally download. Uh, I want to emphasize that is legally, not illegally. Download uh, comics that are public domain. You have a lot of stuff at that website, including a lot of Captain Marvel Wiz comics. So yeah, yeah. it's worth checking out. In terms of where the character went from here, uh, you mentioned that Ma Hunkel returned in the 90s, 2000s JSA series as sort of, was she like just like the cook for the Justice Society? Yeah, I haven't read a whole lot of that. I just know that she's there. I just like the fact that, you know, even though she's only in one page of All-Star Comics, she is in the modern era linked intrinsically with the Justice Society. Mm-hmm. Even in Earth 2 being published currently by by DC Comics, the Red Tornado is an android again, but it's a female again. Right. And uh, it just yeah. seems like a nod back to that. And I enjoyed seeing Ma Hunkle in Smallville. Oh, <laughs> I never saw that. Yeah, they're the Justice Society episodes of Smallville. Uh, Ma Hunkle does make a brief cameo in that. Oh, I saw those episodes. I don't remember her. I don't remember her appearance, though. When they're like flashing back about like what happened to some of the characters, uh, you just see a sort of grisly older woman, <laughs> uh, you know, briefly on the screen. Uh, I assume it's Ma Hunkle and not like you know Jane Barrett or something. <laughs> and then she does, she did sort of have a legacy in the post Infinite Crisis Justice Society of America book, uh, a granddaughter maybe called Cyclone. Yeah, that was an era where they were really making an effort to give a lot of the older characters new legacy characters. Right. Because DC found out that people really, really like legacy characters. (laughs) Go figure. They were finding that out at the same time they were bringing back all of the Silver Age characters who they'd killed off. (laughs) Do you have any other thoughts or comments on Red Tornado? Nope. Only that it's a delightful thing. And if you ever have a chance to read some old-fashioned, golden age fun comics, they are definitely worth reading. Do you feel like sticking around for another story, a proper origin story? Um, I have enough coffee. So sure, I'm good to go. (laughs) 
All right, folks, we're going to take another promotional break, but John and I will be back in a minute with the origin of Mr. America. In 1915, the world went to war. Nations in Europe met across muddy fields in a conflict that stretched across empires across the world. This is in history books. John Adams' story of the First World War is found in the letters he wrote back home to his mother. John Adams' Letters from the Front podcast presents these letters a hundred years after they were written. Follow John Adams' story through joining the army, training and deployment on the Western Front, through his hopes and fears, frustrations and injuries. We see the personal side of a global conflict. You can find John Adams' Personal Journey podcast every month on johnadams.org.uk forward slash letters or on iTunes under John Adams' Letters from the Front podcast. These are his words, read by his grandchildren and narrated by his great-grandchildren. Fighting soldiers from the sky Fearless men who jump and die Men who mean just what they say The brave men of the Green Beret Silver wings upon their chest These are men, America's best One hundred men will test today But only three the Green Beret Trained to live Off nature's land Trained in combat Hand to hand Men who fight By night and day Courage take From the Green Beret Silver wings Upon their chest these are men, America's best. One hundred men will test today, but only three win the Green Beret. Back at home, a young wife waits. Her Green Beret has met his fate. He has died for those oppressed Leaving her this last request Put silver wings on my son's chest Make him one of America's best He'll be a man they'll test one day We're back. John Wilson is still with me, and we're talking about the secret origin of Mr. America, later known as the America Mando. But before he was either of those things, the character was simply called Tex Thompson, and he first appeared in Action Comics Issue 1. That's right, the same issue that introduced the world to Zatara. Are you much of a fan of Mr. America, John? 
I had never heard of him before I did my Golden Age Superman podcast. And I was reading all of the backups. So I was reading Tex Thompson, and it was one of the standout strips of the series. And when he became Mr. America, I was like, ooh, he actually gets a costume. And then later I read James Robinson's Golden Age, which is, I guess we'll talk about the publication history segment, that used the character again. So, uh, yes, Mr. America is one of those characters that because he has such an important role in the Golden Age, he stands out in my heart. Ah, great. Um, Well, as we just said, Tex Thompson debuted in Action Comics number one in a self-titled feature created by Bernard Bailey. Originally, Tex was a wealthy plainclothes adventurer and private investigator with his partner, Bob Daly. In 1941, Tex Thompson was given a dramatic overhaul in the pages of Action Comics issue 33. Because costume superheroes were all the rage, Tex was rebranded Mr. America, a whip-cracking patriotic vigilante who fought Nazi agents in the United States. And because sidekicks were equally prevalent, Texas buddy Bob Daly became the costumed fat man in the very next issue. Then, in Action Comics 52, Mr. America was renamed once again, this time as the Americamando. He left the U.S. to fight the fascists over in Fortress Europa, which he would do until his final Golden Age appearance in Action Comics 74 in 1944. Mr. America would not appear again until 1984, when Roy Thomas brought him back for a couple issues of All-Star Squadron and Young All-Stars. That's what I've got for the character's publication history. Did I miss anything? No, that's basically it. Yeah, just he, he went through a lot of changes. He was one of those characters that changed a lot as the industry changed. Are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of Mr. America? Yes, I am. So the secret origin of Mr. America, alias the Americamando, adapted from stories drawn by Bernard Bailey in Action Comics, has Roy Thomas as the writer and Mike Harris as the artist. David C. Weiss lettered it. Carl, is that Gafford? Yeah. Did the coloring and Mark Wade was the associate editor. Okay. So we open at sort of the end of the... um, random treasure hunting adventurer kind of phase of Tex Thompson's career uh, as he and Bob Daly are walking along the docks. Tex is getting ready to head back out and Bob wishes he were going with him. Now, Bob is a short, stout, bald guy, does not present any sort of action hero profile. And so he he's not exactly the sort of guy I'd expect to go along with a superhero. And that kind of comes uh, a bit of a sad point during the course of the story. So Tex Thompson is going out on a mission to deliver some some food and medicine. Bob Daly staying behind because of all the Nazi U-boats and anything anything you know bad is bound to happen. And while Tex Thompson is on a boat going across the Atlantic, he receives a message that there is a plot to blow up his ship. Tex Thompson goes down into the uh, the lower decks and tries to stop the culprit, but he is apparently too late, and there is an explosion on the ship. And we fade to black as we catch up with Bob Daly three days later under the impression that his best friend and fellow adventurer, Tex Thompson, has perished at sea. However, that night, when some men are about, you know, know, shady characters out and about doing some sabotage, they hear someone whistling Yankee Doodle. 
they kind of get a little bit creeped out, but they keep on doing their business anyway. Suddenly, they are attacked in the dark from behind. We get a glimpse of a bullwhip, and we turn the page, and there is a man who has different colored hair and a completely different look than Tex Thompson. So there's nothing to really connect the two, but he calls himself Mr. America. And after he puts these guys down and departs from the scene, Bob Daly and the inspectors show up and there is a red, white, and blue painted feather left behind with the name Mr. America written as a calling card. Later that night, the same shadowed figure creeps along the high ledge of a towering skyscraper. He's trying to find out the ringleader for the sabotage ring. And we go into basically several efforts to put a stop to the sabotage. Bob Daly finds another feather. And he's sitting at home one night thinking about this feather and thinking about his old friend Tex Thompson when Mr. America shows up in his house. First, he hears the Yankee Doodle being whistled. And he says, hey there. Um, Tex Thompson pulls off his domino mask to reveal that he is Bob Daly's old friend. And they have a brief conversation where they decide that Bob Daly is now going to join Tex Thompson's costumed adventures as Mr. America and Fat Man. You heard it right. Bob Daly puts on a costume that is not entirely unlike Ma Hunkel's. It's not. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Only on his head, he has a lampshade that he has cut slits in, and he has a broom a wide bottom broom for beating up bad guys. And are those donuts painted on the cape? It would certainly go with the theme. (laughs) (laughs) So to sort of um, go over what's going on here, they go off on several adventures, but eventually Mr. America decides that he needs to go um, out alone. He, he gets commissioned by the president to, to go across the ocean and help with the, the war effort. And he leaves Fat Man behind. Bob Daly is very, very sad about this. He does not like the fact that he's been left behind. But Mr. America goes across the, across the sea. He does a lot of special training, uh, learning marksmanship, memorizing maps and data, learning military maneuvers. And he eventually gets commissioned to go to London. His friends in the All-Star Squadron, such as uh, Johnny Quick, uh, come and say goodbye to him. And when he gets over there, he takes up the name Americamando. He changes his costume in for uh, the garb of a Nazi agent of the Gestapo. And so masquerading as the enemy in enemy lands, he is now doing espionage and uh, missions for the allied powers under the guise of the Americamando. And that's where the origin story leaves off, just kind of opening up the chapter of this part of this man's life. And I'm a bit sad that, that we end this story without a single mention of a very important character from Tex Thompson's history. Can I talk about this for a second? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Tex Thompson, before he became Mr. America, whenever he was just having random adventures with Bob Daly, eventually got a friend, Gargantua T. Potts, who is one of the worst examples of racist stereotyping in ancient (laughs) comics. He's tall and gangly, and he's done... What do they call it? It's it's is it mercantile style? There's 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 some some style for that cartooning of uh, African American people that is just over the top lampooning, and he runs around with Tex Thompson for probably fifteen twenty issues of Action Comics. 
it's intended to be funny and you know, sometimes it is, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's very, very terrible. And all, all the general stereotypes of, you know, just being superstitious and spooking easily and comedically having accidents happen that might accidentally cause something good to, to save the day. This was gargantua teapots. And he didn't get mentioned, Ryan. And that makes me sad. I can't imagine why Roy Thomas would not <laughs> want to include that. It just, just hearing about it right now, I was like, you know what Mr. America needed more of was another Jar Jar. Right. <laughs> A racist caricature, though. But that name, oh my gosh, Gargantua Pots. Yeah. Wow. Teapots, no less. Teapots, of course. It's good. Wow. But um, but yeah, so Mr. America, Tex Thompson, the America Command, America Mando is uh, yeah, he's he's a pretty cool element of of Golden Age DC history, and here is his origin here. What did you think about the story? You know, it did what it was supposed to do. Basically, it's a story of the changes in this guy's uh, dynamic. You have a story of the transition from Tex Thompson to Mr. America, and the story of the transition from Mr. America to the America Mando, and then it stops. And that's, that's your origin, is how he got to be this person. I liked that Roy Thomas brought in All-Star Squadron, um, because Roy Thomas is writing, and that's what he does. He brings yeah. in elements from uh, continuity that are cool to drop in there, and it makes it feel like it's part of a, a universe. I liked the pathos and the sadness with Bob Daly, although it's sad that you know Bob got rejected. But really, he was rejected by editors in the 40s, mm-hmm. and you turn that into being rejected by his best friend in the, in the story. So there was, there was some nice sadness there. I liked the story. The character's, you know, not an amazing character, but he's, he's interesting enough, and I liked what they did with him here. So I've got, I've got sort of conflicting feelings about the character, and you kind of broke it out for us. There, there are sort of three iterations of this character. There's the Tex Thompson, who, okay, we've seen lots of characters like that. He's sort of like the Doc Savage type of just adventure. I kind of get that sense. Am I right? Sort of a, yeah, sort of a Christian Doc Savage and maybe Indiana Jones, because there's a lot of treasure okay. hunting and yeah. running into supernatural characters. Okay. So that sounds awesome. I would love to read those stories. Then we've got Mr. America fighting Nazis in the United States, and I really like the costume. I like the design. It's weird. It's, it's, it, it's like a patriotic version of Zorro, mm-hmm. but... It, it feels a little dirty to have the symbol of America wielding a whip <laughs> because historically, oh. <laughs> historically, I had never put Ameri- that together. America as an establishment with a whip hasn't always been perceived well. So that gives me this weird kind of feeling. And I, I don't, I, I don't like the imagery of the, the American symbol with a whip and what that represents. I also don't know why he has a red, white, and blue painted feather, why that's his calling card. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. Mr. America, right? <laughs> <laughs> but why a feather, cousin? Exactly. Like, what is, okay, so, uh, so all of that aside, I like the look, but I just it doesn't seem to fit, and I don't like what it represents. Now, once you get to the third stage, Americando... Aside from the fact that it sounds very much like a, a 90s image comics character's name, once you take him out of the U.S. and you put him in deep cover operating in occupied Europe, somewhere behind enemy lines, where he's posing as a Gestapo agent, and then sort of at night going out in this garish America, like Mr. America costume with a whip, all of a sudden that sounds very cool to me. Now I want to read those stories. Because mm-hmm. that, again, kind of going back to, to Zorro, you, 
it has a, a, a deeper element to why he would have this secret identity. Because if they find out who he is, he will be killed. It's not just like the exposure would ruin his, his secret life. He would be murdered. So I like I, I want to read those stories about a guy infiltrating this, the Nazi regime in Germany or in occupied France somewhere overseas. And when he finds out there's you know something going on, there's this mission where he, he can't get the message to the allies, he's got to stop it himself, then he puts on this costume and he goes out and they're like, who is this American Mando that's operating on our side of the, of the wall or whatever? That, it really intrigues me. So I like the first part of his character and I like the third part of his character. But the Mr. America part, that, that sort of central part when he's cracking the whip in the U.S., that feels weird to me. So, and, and, does, and, does that make fat, sense? Yeah, and Fat Man does not help. Fat Man does not help. And like, <laughs> like you said, when I was first flipping through this, I was like, oh, cool, they integrated Mr. America and Red Tornado into the same story. And I was like, oh. Oh, wait. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I can totally see what you're saying. It, it's kind of a weird thing that happened with some characters around 1941, is you had some kind of cool, unique ideas... Although Text Thomas wasn't super unique, but you did have to get painted with the superhero masked adventurer brush. Right. And they lose something a lot of times. Well, I, I think Sandman really suffered. Absolutely. That was, I was just going to say, I think that he's the biggest victim because I love the original Sandman. And what they did with him when they tried to make him a hero, not happy about that one. Just pretty much a totally separate and different character might as well be. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I have not actually read any of the Americando phase of his run, but you're right. The, the peril and suspense factor of him living as a Gestapo officer and then going out at night as Mr. America, that's pretty intense. Mm-hmm. That's a story that I would want I would want to see more of. Even though he mentions that, yeah, the president has recruited him to do this, this secret mission. And then it seems like the U.S. puts him through every type of training imaginable. Physical combat training, marksmanship, studying German, learning all these things. Like, didn't they have anybody else more qualified? It seems like like they were like, yeah, he's got the right look. Let's hire him. It's like, you've got tons of soldiers and intelligence agents who could do this better. You know, this concept would do well as a sort of uh, Agent Carter-ish type of uh, setup Mm -hmm. where you have – a lot of emphasis on him having to live life as a Nazi. Yeah. A lot of emphasis on that. And yet he's also running missions for Uncle Sam at night and the conflicts between those two parts of his life and how they start to overlap and interact with each other. Mm-hmm. I would watch eight episodes of that on Netflix or wherever it is they t- decided to put it. That sounds like a cool idea. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So I looked up the artist, Mike Harris, on uh, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, and he's got a decent career, but I honestly think this might be the first comic I've ever read by him. Like, he, he did a bunch of issues of All-Star Squadron, but, like, I, I haven't read that entire series, and I was looking at the covers, and I was like, I don't think I've read any of the issues that he did. And he also did, like, issues of The Punisher and some Spider-Man comics that just fell at weird times when I wasn't reading any of those comics in the 90s. So, yeah, I think this is the first time I've ever read a comic by him. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. He has... You know, not a huge number of credits to his name, but he, he, he went for several years on a whole bunch of stuff that I've not read. Oh, it's not bad. I, I, mean, I, I like his style for this type of story. I would, I would read more of this. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, um, I don't really have a whole lot to say about the story else, just that um, 
he's a character that I'm kind of fond of, although I admit that he's not, there's, there's nothing really about him that really stands out that much. But uh, I do, I am looking forward to hopefully getting back into my Golden Age reading and, and reading American Mando stuff. There were certainly a ton of patriotic heroes that were kind of coming out around this time, and a lot of them fell by the wayside. But I think what might set this character apart, I think, would be setting him overseas undercover and make him more of this kind of Zorro of Nazi Germany. I, I think that would be very interesting. Do you know of any specific uh, stories or recommended readings that you would have of this character from the Golden Age? Yeah, he, he was a serial story, so there there are lots of runs of particular plots that, that happen. Nothing particularly stands out in my mind, but if you can get your hands on you know, copies of, you know, old action comic stuff, which, you know, are, are, are out there, then um, it, it's worth reading. He is a standout of the title. As I was reading through Superman, Zatara, and Tex Thompson, and sometimes not even Zatara, sometimes they're just Superman and Tex Thompson that I was enjoying reading. Bob Bailey doesn't have the cleanest art style to him, but it, it's, it's, it's serviceable, and he, he can craft a story. The the biggest thing, the biggest story about this character that stands out in my mind is what James Robinson would go on to do with him in the in the uh, the nineties mm-hmm. with the story of the Golden Age. Yeah, that seems to be their go to recommended reading for every guest who appears who covers one of the Golden Age heroes. I'm like you got to read that story. So. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's just it's, it's the thing about the Golden Age is that you you read Golden Age stories for style more than substance. Because a lot of times, a lot of the plots are very the same. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, all American comics from issue 16 to issue 104, I think, is Green Lantern with his own quarterly, monthly book running alongside for 40 issues. And that's a lot of Green Lantern stories. And I've read like 95% of them, but they all kind of run together in my mind to, to a greater or lesser degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a stuff where it goes off and joins, joins the army for a while. So that stands out. But when you're reading golden age stuff, a lot, there, there's a lot of sameness. And so you're reading it for a, for a feel and for a style and for the gimmicks of a particular character more than for any particular plot or story. I think that's a good way of putting it. I certainly, when I was doing my Black Canary blog, I certainly got that impression reading her archives. It's like, yeah, there's like 30 stories in here. They're all the exact same plot. <laughs> it's like Kaniger and Infantino never did anything different. They just changed the name of the gangster. So. Right. All right. Well, John, thank you very much for being part of this episode of Secret Origins. Where can people find you online if they want to hear more about you? Avengers Inspiration is located at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website. So just search Complete Marvel Reading Order and you'll find a delightful website full of a uh, searchable database of uh, characters from Marvel and their various appearances in chronological order. And under the Podcasts tab of that site is my show. I'm also on the Complete Marvel Reading Order podcast feed in iTunes. And um, as we're recording this, tomorrow night I'm going to be recording the first episode of A New Endeavor. So um, I'll send Ryan a link to where it's going to live because I'm not entirely sure yet where it's going to live. But um, a good friend of mine, Bob Fisher, and I are going to be looking at Silver Age Superman annuals mm. and other giant size reprint collections from that era uh, with the Giant Superman podcast. Nice. So that'll be coming out soon. I will be sure to put that in the show notes for this episode. Definitely. All right. Hopefully, hopefully the first episode is already out by the time this goes out, and uh, and you can give it a listen. 
Well, John, one more time, thank you very much for being part of this show. Uh, I, I enjoyed having this talk about these characters, and thank you very much for being part of Secret Origins. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. I received an email from a new listener named Michael Lane, who just finished listening to episode 7. That was the Guy Gardner and Sandman episode. Michael writes, Superman, Captain Marvel, and Sandman are big favorites of mine, so those episodes were a particular treat. I also share your love of Sandman mystery theater, and that was how I really fell in love with the character. I was already familiar with Sandman from Roy Thomas's Earth 2 comics, but Roy tended to have him in the Kirby version, so I never had a big interest. But one day, I saw a cover of Sandman Mystery Theater, and I was intrigued, and that series quickly became one of my all-time favorites. Eventually, I picked up the DC archives and the hardcovers reprinting the Simon and Kirby era. I think the Simon Kirby stories are solid tales, but really, if you changed Wesley's mansion to a military base and replaced him and Sandy with Cap and Bucky, most of the stories could easily be Cap and Bucky or any number of Golden Age stories. It's the gas mask version that I love, and it is primarily because of the Mystery Theater title. Anyways, I'm getting off topic due to my attachment to Sandman, but I have really enjoyed every episode so far. The idea of having guest hosts for each character is great, and it is a perfect format for Secret Origins. I really look forward to catching up. Well, thank you very much for that, Michael. I appreciate you writing in. I hope you stick with the podcast long enough to hear me respond to this. And yeah, Sandman Mystery Theater is one of my favorite series of all time, too. And seemingly out of nowhere, the most recent solicits for DC's upcoming books include a new trade paperback that collects Sandman Mystery Theater issues 1 through 12, so like the first three story arcs, and it's coming out later this year. I have no idea why they're reprinting the book, but I'm super happy about it. Hopefully they go through the whole series, because I think the last trade paperback run petered out around issue 52. Uh, anyways, thank you once again for the email, Michael. And now on to the social media. Episode 28, the Nightshade and Midnight episode, received Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange, Captain Marvel, at Captain Marvel 75 Codename Greg A, Coffee and Comics Blog, Dr. G, Nerdologist, Film and Water Podcast, FKA Jason, Keith G. Baker, Mario, at Luther Lang, Richard Field, Rolled Spine Podcast, Silver and Gold Podcast, and Sin. New Facebook likes and shares came from Aaron Moss, Alan Middleton, Ben Brainerd, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, David Ace Gutierrez, Gene Hendricks, G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Igor Glushkin, Jimmy McClinchy, Joe Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Max Romero, Michael Lake, Mike Peacock, Nicholas Prom, Russell Burbage, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, The Irredeemable Shag, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Task Force X Podcast, Tim Wallace, Todd Strickland, and Trevor Owen Williams. Russell Burbage said, These characters, referring to Nightshade and Midnight, made Secret Origins, but Aquaman never did? I cry BS. As I mentioned to Russell on Facebook that Aquaman did have a one-shot special called The Legend of Aquaman that came out, I think, the same year as these episodes. Maybe that story started as an idea for Secret Origins, but eventually it got moved into his own solo book. So. Thank you, Russell, and thank you everybody who supported the show on Facebook and Twitter. 
On to the website comments. Remember, people, if you want to leave a comment for the show, you can shoot me an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com or post on the Secret Origins entry of the Fire and Water website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com backslash secret origins. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said of the Nightshade origin, There was enough elements of Amethyst, Supergirl, and the general young hero trying to find her way to make me like this story. Yes, it is heavy on the exposition, but I felt that was part of Secret Origins. It needed to be heavy on backstory. Rereading it, I am struck that this story is semi-repetitive. Head to homeworld, run away, fall in love with whatever male you are working with, rinse, repeat. Having so much of her story lean on these transient love interests makes her seem less independent, less strong. I agree with that. Uh, and Ange concluded, Lastly, if you want to read a great comic Nightshade is in, read Grant Morrison's Pax Americana issue of his Multiverse run. That book might be the most perfect comic book ever. I don't know, Ange. I think Morrison's Thunderworld issue of Multiverse was the most perfect comic ever. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water and Film and Water podcast said, This issue really feels like one Roy Thomas pushed through on the strength of his position at the company, and that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your point of view. To pair two such obscure characters together, and to top it off with a cover by someone who is not a typical fan favorite takes pure moxie. I would kill to know the sales figures for this book. It must have had peaks and valleys not seen outside of a Russ Meyer film. Ah, great imagery there, Rob. Uh, he continues, the Nightshade story was humanity's chance to kill Rob Liefeld's career in its crib, and we blew it. I love the Midnight story, mostly because I loved Gil Kane's artwork, monkey panel notwithstanding. All of his streetwise stories feel like they come with 1950s TV cop music embedded in them. At least that's what I hear when I read them. And Midnight will be back after this word from Geritol. I love Geritol. You know, it cures tired blood. Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network said, I have recently found issues 1, 8, 9, and 10 of Ms. Tree Quarterly. This quartet of books cost me a grand total of one American dollar. But of course that makes sense. It is Ms. Tree Quarterly. Get it? Get it? Anyway, I've only read number one so far, and the Max Allen Collins story was really good, and the Denny O'Neill story was actually a prose piece, maybe six or eight pages long, with a handful of illustrations each page by Mike Grell. I would love to see more of this type of story in comics. Well, actually, Professor, we do get a story like that in the final issue of Secret Origins. Stay tuned, it's only like 24 episodes away now. Jeff Nettleton said, Liefeld at DC was aided immensely by the Inkers. They cleaned up a lot of anatomy, and the editors forced him to work a bit on storytelling. I'm no fan of his work, but Marvel let him be more of his own stylist, for good or ill. Hawk and Dove was probably a better showcase for what he would become. I do think Liefeld had the raw talent to be a good artist, but he was let off the leash a little too early, and thanks to speculators ruling the market, he got into a position where he had little reason to grow from a financial aspect. On the Midnight Origin, Jeff said, It's nice to see Gil Kane get to do some old-fashioned crime noir, something he did rarely, but did well. It reminds me of his run on Daredevil with Jim Shooter, which tends to be forgotten thanks to preceding Frank Miller. I wish Roy had captured more of the spirit, sorry, of the original Midnight Stories, but Roy wasn't the most consistent of humor writers. William Mesner Loeb's from the cover art would have been a good choice to write this one. Michael T. Gilbert would have been another. In fact, I would have loved to see those two on this story, even more than Kane and Thomas. 
Jeff also said, On a side note, I came across the house ad for the upcoming Action Comics revamp in this issue. They hadn't yet let us know that it would be Action Comics Weekly. I still remember those teasers, wondering what they were going to do, then looking at the finished product. It ended up a bit of a mixed bag. Yeah, speaking of Action Comics Weekly, Chad Bokelman from the Lantern cast, an occasional guest on this show, is developing an Action Comics Weekly podcast. I have no idea when it's coming out, but Chad is working on it, and a lot of guests from Secret Origins will be making appearances on that show. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, I always liked Nightshade's costume. I understand Jim Aparo drew some of her backup features at Charlton, and that was some of his first comic work. I understand why DC updated the look in Suicide Squad shortly after this, but I think they should have kept the orange-slash-dark-blue color scheme. Well, I agree with that, Chris, but I grew up a Chicago Bears fan, so... Chris says, I had to double-check and make sure Carl Kessel didn't ink Rob Liefeld here. It looks quite a bit like the Hawk and Dove miniseries. I think Jeff is right that the inkers at DC reigned in his Liefeldness. If only he'd picked up some tips from them along the way. Oh well. I'm guessing the tone of the Midnight Story had more to do with Thomas and Kane being more interested in doing a spirit pastiche than actually showcasing Midnight. But man, that is some nice Kane art. I love Kane's dynamism, but I sometimes think his work suffered when he inked himself. Too muddy, too many lines, there's still a lot of detail here, but it seems more structured than most of his 80s work. I couldn't agree more, Chris. Gil Kane is one of my favorites. Nathaniel Wayne from Council of Geeks and 90s Comics Retrial said, Oh dear God, you found patient zero for the widespread infection that was Rob Liefeld. Having already sampled what he would eventually become, it's odd to see him more subdued in these early days, though it's equally odd to see that he never knew how to draw guns in people's hands. Oh, Rob, why you so... EXTREME! Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Network said, Overwritten was my bolded and underlined short-form critique of Bob Greenberger's story, and it's ironic that an editor couldn't seem to edit his own copy. There's so much unnecessary dialogue that doesn't move the story, and worse, works to make me dislike the characters through their oversharing. Compared to the serialized, incomplete origin of Nightshade from her 60s backup strip, this version does not deviate significantly from the facts, but completely misrepresents the feeling. David Kaler embedded his origin flashbacks into a two-part adventure story. Eve Eden's mother was reckless, and sent herself and her children to a bad place, but that was her fault and her price to pay. Kaler then showed Eve trained to become a heroine who could make things right. Greenberger, meanwhile, has Eve repeatedly, haphazardly, and to only damaging effect visit Fairyland alone and unprepared. Kaler has Eve play the Paris Hilton role to protect her loving but disapproving father from her secret life. Greenberger just has Wayne Eden check out of her life, forcing unconvincing convolutions to lead her to an alter ego. The replacement of Captain Adam and having the Suicide Squad complete Nightshade's core heroic journey were not Greenberger's decisions, but they further burden a plotting plot that fails to come to a proper conclusion. Plus, all that Catholic hand-wringing, which was very much counter to the air of Kaler's loose, buoyant, secular scripts and got on my nerves the most. But hey, I liked King Faraday's part. Uh, Frank goes on, I have often defended Rob Liefeld, but his work here is everything the image revolution rebelled against. It's stiff, boring talking heads in pages densely crowded with lifeless panels lacking in flashy details. Jim Aparo's work from two decades prior felt more contemporary, exciting, and sexy, though mostly on the beefcake front. It's only with the costumed heroes that Liefeld halfway perks up, 
and I'd trade all this uninspired storytelling for a bunch of guns that look like pregnancy test sticks awkwardly balanced on the perpetually clenched fists of action figures with black spermatozoa squiggles all over their faces. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Thanks for another great episode, chaps. I don't remember this issue, though I likely read it at the time. I did like Nightshade and Suicide Squad, though I'm always forgetting her secret ID, getting the name Eve Eden mixed up with June Moon. But not Eve Arden or Imra Ardeen. And finally, FKA Jason from the Silver and Gold podcast says, I've got nothing but love for the darling of darkness, Nightshade. Not only did she get her start in the pages of Captain Adam, but I was a fan of the Suicide Squad in the 80s. I particularly liked the music of this episode. Sometimes I think you're stalking my iTunes. We seem to like a lot of the same music. Great episode, Ryan. Well, thank you very much for that. I do put a lot of consideration into the music selections for each episode, even when I decide that Lady Gaga is the best fit. And I think that's going to be it for this episode. Very special thanks to my guests, Diablo Frank and John M. Wilson. Make sure to check out Frank's half-dozen podcasts over on the Rolled Spine Network, and check out John's new Giant Superman podcast that he does with Bob Fisher. I also want to thank all of my listeners who took the time to leave a comment or a response on the website, the Facebook page, or on Twitter. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com backslash secretorigins or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Do what